grew up amidst many half-brothers and sisters. His home was somewhat, maybe more than somewhat chaotic in his lifetime. But he was always called the son of promise. He was the one. And when his father died, he was to inherit almost everything. And when he was 40 years old, he first laid eyes on his wife, his wife-to-be. And he committed himself to loving her and treasuring her and cherishing her and caring for her. And for 20 years of marriage, there were no children. And when he was 60, she brought the joyful news, I'm going to have a baby. And the day came to deliver. And it's any first-time dad can tell you there's a lot of nervousness and fear. And remember when Raquel was born, it was the hardest thing for me not to ask the doc if he really knew what he was doing after how many thousands of these he'd been through. I didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> it was hard not to be. But the baby was born, and it was a son, and he came out covered in red hair. Interestingly enough, he wasn't the only one. There was a twin who was hanging on to the firstborn's foot. So at 60 years of age, he has two sons, twin boys, who couldn't have been more different. Not only was the older one hairy from the start, and the younger one smooth skin, looked more like a Nelson. (laughs) The older one grew up just aggressive, almost mean sometimes. No tact, he was obnoxious. When he saw something, He worked hard to go get it. He was rough and tumble. He loved to hunt. He loved the outdoors. He loved the physicality of hard work. He was his daddy's favorite. The younger brother, much more shy, sensitive, empathetic, Mama's boy. He wasn't a stranger to hard work, but he didn't go looking for it. Bookish. Polar opposite of his brother in personality. The older brother, if you were going into a scrap, you'd go look him up. And you let him take most of the beating, and he would enjoy it. And the younger one, when it was over, you went to him to get patched up and get some empathy for your stupidity. And there was constant tension between the brothers. Much of it fostered by mom and dad who had picked up their favorite 
who could see no wrong in the one and point out every fault in the other. And when the boys were 18 to maybe 25 years old, the older one named Esau was out hunting. And after three or maybe four days of limited success, if any, he came home hungry and tired and stinky and more obnoxious than normal. And he smelled food. And he goes to his brother's tent. And, in, and there it is. A big pot of lentil stew, seasoned and fixed, and it was a dark red and smelled awesome. And Esau said, give me some of that now, or I will die. And the younger brother by minutes said, take a hike. You can eat when the rest of us do. He says, you're going you're gonna to let me die of hunger? And Jacob looks at his brother as to say, yeah. And his brother says, give me some now. So Jacob looks at him and says, all right then. Give me your birthright now and I'll feed you. At which Esau gladly said, I'll sell it to you for everything in the pot. The pot was his, the bread was his, and Genesis chapter 25, verse 34, we read that Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. Never gave it another thought. You know the story. So I want to define two terms and ask a question. And then we'll go home. The first term is birthright, because in our culture, what is it? You know, we strive so hard to make everything fair and equal and this and that, make sure nobody's hurt or, you know, some do and then some don't care at all and they just leave the mess for the kids to figure out. But in this time and in this place, the birthright was pretty significant. It brought order to chaos. It was a polygamous culture. And you could marry as many wives as you could afford, as you could support, as you could provide for. So the birthright became a thing which brought order to the chaos. The firstborn son was expected to receive the birthright. And what the birthright meant was you received double whatever your siblings would receive in terms of the inheritance. Now with Jacob and Esau, that was quite significant. However, for most of the world, just like it is today, I was just telling my dad here maybe a month ago, it's like, I'm not expecting a whole lot when you move on. So <laughs> just have it neat and tidy, whatever's left. <laughs> but there was a lot to be had in the birthright in this case, to receive double your brothers and sisters. It also passed on, it was a patriarchal society in which father did know best. And even when he didn't, 
you assume that he did. And so with the birthright came the judicial authority of the father. Whoever held the birthright became the spokesman for the family. Became the final say. Became the final word in matters of decision or argument that were going on. The birthright also carried with it the responsibility to care for and protect the family. It meant that you were going to stay close to home. It meant that when mom and dad were aged and no longer could care for themselves, you would take them in, you would care for them. If you had brothers and sisters that fell upon hard times and had no one to care for them or to look after them, you took them in and you provided for their needs. It wasn't just about double inheritance. It was about a lot of responsibility. Esau despised his birthright. Second word I want to look at is despised. The Hebrew word for despised is what, Dan? He'll know it next week. I don't know either. Well, I can't pronounce it, so I won't try. But it's used over 500 times in the Old Testament. And the best translation, the best word in English really is despised. It carries the full weight of the meaning behind it. It carries the thought of careless contempt or disdain to treat despicably, to treat with scorn. It's an attitude of neglect or indifference. This responsibility was treated by Esau with complete contempt or disdain. It meant nothing to him. He didn't care. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now the birthright could be, depending on situation, while most of the time it was given to the oldest son, there were extenuating circumstances in which sometimes the father would have a favored son that was younger and he would pass it on to him. Or perhaps it could be sold or traded if the older son couldn't live up to the responsibilities. In this case, neither was the case. Esau despised his birthright. He held it in careless contempt. So there's a story, there's two definitions, and here's the question. What do I despise? Which of God's gifts do I despise? Which of God's blessings poured out on me in my life do I hold in contempt? Because I don't want the responsibility that comes with it. In James 1, 16 and 17, 
we read that James begging the readers, do not be deceived, my dear brothers, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not shift, does not change like the shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift is from God. And the problem is, sometimes the good and perfect gift doesn't fit our definition. And I think in 45 years, between personal experience and being around a lot of people, see there's four most common ways that I see individuals treat God's good gifts with disdain, who despise God's blessings. So if you can leave here without feeling like your feet have been walked on, I want to talk to you. I can't. I've been stepping on my own feet all week. I think the four most common ways that I see myself treat God's gifts with scorn, the first one revolves around the weather. I mentioned it last week during announcements, but Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And we want to think of the stars and the moon and the horizon and all that, but also the clouds, the storm clouds, the lightning, even the downpours declare the glory of God. A four-foot snow declares the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that all mankind is without excuse because God is revealed in his creation and his creativity. And yet I despise the weather. I, I treat God's gift with scorn. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too wet, it's too dry, it's too windy, it's too calm, and it's only Monday. If you don't like it, move to San Diego. You can deal with other problems. It's a gift. And rather than grumping and despising what I can't control, it should point me back to my Savior and my need, my dependence on him. Trusting that he will provide and he will take care and he will look after. I think a second common way we treat God's gifts with disdain is our lot in life. In Acts 17, Paul suddenly finds himself in Athens. I don't think Paul ever suddenly found himself anywhere except trouble. But... He's in Athens and he's looking around and he's waiting for a couple friends to show up and, and he just can't take it anymore and he, and he starts preaching and he gives probably the best apologetic sermon ever delivered. 
And as he's wrapping things up on Mars Hill, he tells his listeners that God has placed us where we are in this time so that we might seek him. And as we seek him, as we feel our way towards him, that we will find him. We treat our lot in life with scorn, with derision, with contempt. If only I had been born into a different family. One that wasn't so strict or so lenient or so nosy or so disinterested. If only I didn't live here. Life would be so much better wherever. If only I had more. If only I didn't have so much. How many of us have ever said that? Until we move. If only I lived in a different time. I was born too late or I was born too soon. If only I was in a different culture, a different society, one that wasn't so wicked or so violent or so divided or so selfish. In the book of Esther, Mordecai is telling his niece, who is balking at the responsibility of approaching the king. He says, perhaps it was for such a time as this that you were placed in the kingdom. We are where we're at, not by accident. We weren't born too late or too soon, or into the wrong home. We aren't living in the wrong place. We are where God has placed us. And do I treat that with contempt? Do I despise that? Or am I searching out why am I here? And what does God have for me? What's his plans? How can I help advance the kingdom where I'm at? Another way that I see God's gifts and blessings despised is in my talents and abilities or lack thereof. We're all born with talents and abilities. And some of those talents and abilities are exalted and, and, and pushed clear to the front in our culture. And while others are just kind of, oh, maybe not as impressive or deemed to be not as impressive, we're created this way with varying levels of talent. And, and what's more, at the moment that we repent, at the moment we give our hearts and lives to Christ, at the moment that we confess our sin, that the moment that we confess that Jesus is Lord, 
We are indwelled with and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And at that very moment, the Holy Spirit passes on spiritual gifts, a package of giftings that it's up to us to discover and develop, to serve the church and build the kingdom. And probably I'm the only one who has ever thought, if only I was gifted differently. If only I was like so-and-so. Man, that'd be so cool. And little do I realize how many times so-and-so has thought, if only... And I treat these gifts with disdain. I want what someone else has. If only I could be comfortable up front. I'm fairly comfortable right now. You ask me to sing up here and I'm just, I melt. And I'm okay with that. As long as you don't ask me. Or make me. That was one of the greatest things about turning 18 and moving out of the house. I didn't have mom volunteering me to sing. I could say no without guilt. I want to be good at something else. I don't want the responsibility that comes with my gifting. One of my gifts is leadership, and you know, that's a pain a lot of times. But what can I do? I can be like David. Say, I tried to keep my mouth shut while my bones wasted away within me. Or I can embrace the gifting and trust God to grant the grace and the abilities to do it well. There are those who are not gifted with leadership. And, you know, we had a friend, and we'd always joke, he couldn't lead a starving man to a sandwich. But, oh, my goodness, some of the things that he could do behind the scenes, some of the things to, you know, the gift of mercy and gentleness and kindness that he possessed... I'd rather work with this group of people than this group of people. Why did God have to make, you know, why is it I relate with these folks here? I'd much rather be relating with these. You know, whether it be young kids, and there are some that have the knack. Right, Jeff? And then there are some that don't. Right, Chris? Not that she doesn't. What are junior hires? Oh, those are precious few. Or high school or college age or whatever 
age group it is, and then there are even different ethnic groups or nationalities or even subsets within the culture. And why do I have to be so comfortable around those that just have a hard time in life? Oh, it'd be so much easier to work with somebody else with fewer perceived problems. You are where you are because the Holy Spirit has gifted you and we need to embrace that and develop that and learn to be passionate about that. Fourth way that I see myself treating God's gifts, his blessings with scorn or disdain is in trials and hardships and suffering. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, James tells us, consider it pure joy. I think the literal translation from the Greek would be throw a party. Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and allows steadfastness to have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And when trials and hardships and sufferings come into my life, it's so much easier to step back and hopefully let it pass by. Or when I see them coming, and I'm not nearly as fast as I used to be, and I was never very fast, and so to try to run to get out ahead of it is futile. Consider it pure joy. Embrace it. Step into it. Allow God to walk you through it. Learn from it. Be steadfast in it. Because as we do those things, We experience the full effect that we are made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're called to embrace suffering as a gift allowed to us from the loving hand of God to make us into the image of his son. And if I can learn to do that, if I can learn to suffer and endure like that, then it's not about me being tough. It's not about my stiff upper lip. It's about what God is doing. I've never met a godly man or woman who has lived a life of hardship or suffering who hasn't had to endure years and years of pain or sickness that didn't say, I'm grateful for it. Because I see what God has done in it. When I was in high school, I met a guy, his name was Dave. 
He was a Marine. He was tough. He was mean. But while in the Corps, suddenly his endurance went away from him. While in the Corps, suddenly his legs began weak. He got sick and he was diagnosed with MS. And when I met him, he was in a wheelchair. And I can remember him saying over and over, over and over, I am so grateful for MS. Because apart from this, I would have never humbled my heart. That's a hard life. Every day. Every day. Every day. And yet I never once heard this guy complain. He recognized it for what it was. It was a gift. It was a blessing. And I ran my knee into the corner of the bed and oh, my day stinks. What else can go wrong? Let me count the ways. Trials and hardships and suffering are a gift intended to draw us to our Savior, intended to mold us in his image, intended to show God's power and glory to those who are lost and desperate for hope. Because my being a tough guy and being able to grind through it doesn't help somebody else. In Romans 8, in Romans 8, I just love this chapter. There is so much in it. And I can't ever read it without seeing something else in there and just like, how did I forget this was here? Or how did I never notice it before? But Paul is reminding the believers in Rome of who they are and what God has done, what Christ has done. And as he gets to verse 31, he's summarizing all that he has said in the first 30 verses. And he says, what shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? In verse 35, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We aren't victims. We aren't helpless folks who've been put upon by life. We're more than conquerors. So why do we treat the gift of suffering with disdain? We've been blessed beyond measure. Let's pray.
hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.